The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warmer from the Abo, welcome to Bobby Las Vegas for Coast to Coast with myself, Greg Ips Peterson, now part of the Visa Family Podcast. We've got a tremendous podcast for you guys. Joining me in segment number two, it is going to be Blake Lovell, as this is the SEC Conference Preview Edition. And Blake joins me every single year for this podcast. He does amazing work over at Southeastern 14. It is a very interesting conference. It's a conference that has some question marks, but at the same time, it is one of my favorite conferences to evaluate every single year. We're going to be taking a look at all these rosters, some of the teams that still have some mysteries with regards to waivers, what have you. We're going to be taking a look at how these coaches all run their system, the varying styles that we see in the SEC. In segment number one, going to give you guys just a little bit on the betting trends that we have seen, what teams go up tempo, what teams are a little bit slower, a little bit faster. And then in the final segment, I'm going to get you guys my projector or finish for the SEC. Since I am doing a conference preview today, I will not be doing the news and notes that we saw in college basketball on Sunday, but have no fear. Everything that we saw on Sunday, I'll be rounding up on the podcast tomorrow. So we've got you guys all covered there. If you do have a question, comment, segment idea, what have you for this podcast, you have one of two ways we offer those in. First one is my Twitter slash X timeline at GNN underscore D1. Keep in mind, letters EM, they mean does not matter. So as per usual, please do send these into the timeline. Otherwise, find an Apple podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated from there. You are able to fire in whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast via that five-star review. That should clean up everything that we need cleaned up. And let's get down to business and let's take a look at an SEC that certainly played quite up-tempo last year. And what I think was a hallmark of the SEC, and we're going to be talking about this with Blake in segment number two, is both the fact that teams could not hit threes within this conference, and they did a good job of being able to defend threes as well. And I do think that it is one of those cases where, yes, the three-point shooting was rough. Yes, the three-point shooting defense was amazing. It's probably a little bit of both that led to the low three-point shooting numbers that we saw. Like, you just take a look at this conference. Out of 363 D1 teams last year, this conference housed the worst three-point shooting team in all of college basketball, Mississippi State. It was not too terrific. They shot a grand total of 26.6% from three-point range. Got to feel like they're going to be able to do a little bit better there. And I did pile drive down a lot of the numbers that we did see within the conference. And and you'll notice, like, Ole Miss, they were 344th in the country with regards to three-point shooting percentage. These were really the two main outliers. Florida overall was in the low 300s, high 200s, 313th to be exact, but the fact that they shot 26.3% from three-point range on the road, that was a bona fide mark in all of college basketball. Auburn was 309th in the country in terms of three-point shooting percentage, so you did have a lot of teams that were very rough 
from three-point range. And then, obviously, a team like Alabama, for instance, and Tennessee. These were just teams that absolutely got after you with regards to three-point shooting percentage. Certainly, I think that Tennessee would have struggled a little bit more with regards to three-point shooting percentage in the Summit League, but also in the Summit League, they wouldn't have drove in on them as well. So I do think that you always want to be taking a look at both aspects of things as out of the top six teams in terms of opponent three-point shooting percentage last season, the SEC housed three of them. Auburn was number six, Alabama was number four, Tennessee was number one. And even if you take a look at the road numbers for these teams as well, because obviously you've got a lot of great home court environments, all three of these teams, they ranked in the top 12 with regards to opponent three-point shooting percentage. So they did a very good job of being able to travel. They really did a nice job of being able to get all up in you. And this is a conference that, even though you've got a lot of up-tempo teams, they do a very nice job of being able to defend and just really making life miserable for you if you are an offense as Tennessee and Alabama, two of the teams I was just talking about. They were in the top four in the country in terms of raw points allowed on a per-possession basis. And then Mississippi State allowed a few more threes last season, though they were still towards the top of all of college basketball. They ranked eighth in the country in terms of opponents, points made on a per-possession basis as well. So you had a lot of really good defense within this conference. And you also always notice this every single year with regards to the conference. You'll notice some teams that they get off to rough non-conference starts and then they really pick it up in conference. We saw that really with two teams last season. Texas A&M and Vanderbilt were able to do a really nice job when they got in conference after it was a little bit of a less than savory go for them out of conference. Like Vanderbilt, it was not so great for them to begin the season. Then they go 11-7 and within the SEC. They were dealing with injuries to Liam Robbins all season long. So that certainly took a little bit out of them, but they were able to do a nice job of regrouping from there. And Texas A&M. This bunch lost to Wofford on their home court towards the back half of non-conference play, but then they were able to do a nice job being able to rise up. They earn a seven seed to the NCAA tournament. They go 15-3 and within the SEC. Now, from there, it was relatively rough when they went up against Penn State, but I always do find that to be very interesting within the SEC, as in the SEC, certainly it was Alabama who was able to take care of business. They were able to be that top seed in the NCAA tournament going 16-2 and within the conference. You could tell that the off-the-court issues that happened with Brandon Miller, they certainly did hurt them a little bit, but all in all did a solid job. And then, as I was alluding to Texas A&M, they were your number two team. Kentucky, for as much scrutiny as they went under, they went 12-6. and And then you had a nice middle within the SEC. Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Missouri, they all finish 11-7 and within the conference. All these teams, except for Vanderbilt, were able to make the NCAA tournament as, as a conference. They were able to get eight teams into the NCAA tournament, one of them being in the playing round in Mississippi State. They and Arkansas both went 8-10 within the conference. Florida, they just had a rough go of it towards the back half of the season. They went 9-9. and You had Auburn at 10-8, and and you had a very clear bottom four within the conference. Georgia at 6-12, and South Carolina at 4-14, four and 14, Ole Miss at 3-15, and 15, and LSU at 2-16. and 16. As we saw with Ole Miss, they made a big coaching change with Chris Beard, so going to be very interesting to see how they're going to be able to 
bounce back from what was just not a great end to the tenure of Kermit Davis. You could tell that he just wasn't able to get this team online in general, but you do take a look at some of the betting trends that we saw within the SEC, and I thought it was very striking to take a look at how some of these teams were able to perform just overall against the spread, because it was very spread out and sporadic. Texas A&M, because of their rough start to the season, you were able to get great numbers on them within conference play. That led to them being 23-12 and 12 against the spread. Meanwhile, LSU, they got off to a hot start. They completely flailed down the stretch. Same goes for Georgia. They were your least profitable teams as a result. 11-21 against the spread for Georgia. LSU, 10-22-1 against the spread. You also had Ole Miss, who... They just couldn't get online all season long. They weren't great out of conference. They were really not great in conference. 11, 20, and 2 against the spread. Past that, it was pretty even, Steven. You did have South Carolina go 18 and 14 against the spread. They were oftentimes catching some big numbers, but you really didn't have a lot that was demonstrative as Mississippi State, Florida, Kentucky, Auburn all went either 16 and 17 or 16 and 18 within the conference. Alabama, Vanderbilt, they both covered 20 games. Alabama, 16 losses and a push. Vanderbilt, 17 losses to go along with those 20 covers. Arkansas, 18, 17, and 1 against the spread. So nothing overly demonstrative there, but I always think that with this conference, it is a case where whoever does badly out of conference, typically they find themselves with a lot of value in conference. And you did see that with two out of your top three cover teams. Alabama was amazing all season long. They went 14 and 7 against the spread within the SEC, but Texas A&M. 15 and 6 against the spread within the conference. Vanderbilt 14 and 7 against the spread. Meanwhile, LSU 6 13 and 1 against the spread within the conference. Georgia 5 and 14 against the spread within the conference. This is a conference that typically the top teams with regards to straight up record, they typically are some of your better cover teams. And South Carolina, South Carolina just because of the numbers that they were catching. They, Kentucky, Florida, all went 11 and 8 against the spread within the conference. Mississippi State, who is a middling team within the conference, they went 10 and 10 against the spread. Guess if you add a little bit of an outlier, Missouri 8, 11, and 1 against the spread within the conference. But all in all, you didn't see anything that really necessarily stood out with regards to just something very strange other than South Carolina being able to cover all those games. And within the SEC, you've got great home court advantages, but they're very much taken into account. And once again, the bad teams, Georgia, Ole Miss, LSU, they were your bottom three teams against the spread at home. LSU, 4-14 against the spread at home. Ole Miss, 5-11-1 against the spread. Georgia, 6-11 against the spread. Meanwhile, Texas A&M, 12-4 against the spread. Texas A&M, 12-4 against the spread at home. Tennessee, 11-5 against the spread at home. And then you have Alabama, 9-6. And, and most of the other teams were relatively even. Steven, where I think the intrigue comes in is with regards to the totals. Because we have seen a lot of overs in the SEC over the last few years. But bookmakers adjust because... You saw in like the 2020-21 and 2021-2022 seasons, the conference overrate was just absolutely ridiculous. And you saw it once again last year to a little bit of a lesser extent. It's not as demonstrative as what you saw during the, oh, I don't know, 2021-22 season when all but two teams had at least 50% of their games go over the total and all but four teams had at least 55% of their games over the total, I don't know if we're ever going to quite see that again, but you only had three teams within the conference have fewer than 50% of their games go over the total in conference play. Tennessee, obviously, lockdown defense, eight overs, 11 unders, and a push. Texas A&M got their act together on defense, eight overs, 13 unders, and then Alabama, seven overs, 13 unders, and a push. 
a lot of people think because Alabama was one of the most up-tempo teams in all of college basketball last year that that led to a lot of overs, not so much, but with Kentucky, 13 overs, 6 unders. They got their offense going towards back half of the season, and the defense was a little bit of a question mark. You had South Carolina, Florida, Auburn, and Mississippi State all have 11 overs apiece with South Carolina 7 unders, Florida 8 unders, Auburn 8 unders, and Mississippi State 9 unders, so all these teams between 55 and 61% of their games going over the total. Vanderbilt, 14 overs, 7 unders. They weren't necessarily the world's greatest on defense, but they were able to get things going on offense. Arkansas and Georgia both had 10 overs to 9 unders. Arkansas with a push in the middle, and then Mississippi along with Missouri, LSU, all 10 and 10 uh, with regards to overs and unders within the conference as well. And if you're taking a look at non-conference play, these teams, they can get slowed down just a little bit as like Mississippi State, for instance, with that hardcore defense, 12 out of their 14 non-conference games went under the total. Tennessee, 11 of their 16 non-conference games went under the total. Heck, even Florida, out of their 14 non-conference games, 9 of them go under. Meanwhile, these teams that they do go super-duper up-tempo, they are going to play a few more overs. Like with Auburn, you saw them have 10 overs and 5 unders out of conference. Alabama, 9 overs to 7 unders. So it's a fascinating conference to say the least. One in which you do have some high flyers with regards to their tempo. Even a team like Tennessee, they're not necessarily the slugs of the slugs. And you tell that is a need for speed. So coming up next, we are going to be taking a look at all 14 of these teams. With Blake Lovell, he does great work over at Southeastern 14. We're going to be taking a look at the roster moves. Team still in a little bit of limbo with regards to who is slash is not going to be out there on the floor. With regards to some of those two-time transfer waivers and so much more. And that's up next right here on Coast Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Eats Peterson, now part of the Houston Family Podcast, the SEC Conference Preview. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to become a winning sports better? Schedule a call with SBIA to find out how their service can make you a long-term winning player. They've developed an innovative algorithm that maximizes units return, and they are so confident in their system that they offer a money-back guarantee. Sign up by October 31st and get their NBA package at no cost until they reach 10 net units. They treat sports betting like a business. So if you want to learn how to make your sports betting dreams a reality, visit them at SBIA1.com and check them out on social media at SBIA Sports. Las Vegas, because Gussie, with myself, Greg Eames Peterson, now part of the Visa Family Podcast. It is the SEC Preview Edition, and it would not be the SEC Preview Edition without this man, Blake Lovell. He joins me every year for this preview. He does amazing work over there at Southeastern 14, which I'm pretty sure this will be the last year of Southeastern 14 before it becomes Southeastern 16, 18. Who knows? By the year 2034, it might be Southeastern 34 for all we know. But Blake does an amazing job taking a look at this game that we all know and love. You're able to follow him on Twitter slash X over at the Blake level. That last name is spelled L-O-V-E-L-L. And Blake, always great to have you aboard. Thank you. I always enjoy it, Greg. Thanks as always for having me on. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And, Blake, let's start out by going to your neck of the woods and Vanderbilt, because I think that Vanderbilt is such an intriguing team. Had a rough go of it in non-conference play. They really rose up towards back half of the season. Once again, were able to win a few games in the NIT. Haven't necessarily been able to get over the hump, make the NCAA tournament, and perhaps win a game. But they do bring back guys like Ezra Magnon. I always say that a little bit wrong, but... He was doing, able to do a solid job towards backup last year. And I think the big key is how much can Tyron Lawrence take from what he was able to do towards backup of last season? And how much is this team going to be able to provide down low as well with the likes of Lee Dorton and company? Yeah, I think it's you know very clear to me when you just look at the makeup of this roster that there's talent there. And I think that was kind of one of those things where you sort of look at Overall depth, maybe before last year, and you looked at some of those, you know, initial rosters, and you could tell that Terry Stackhouse was just trying to, again, find anything he could, think to be able to put together a competitive team on a night and night out basis in the SEC. But I think now they've been able to build off of just the player development aspect, and you know, 
like you said, Manuel comes in, is really developed now as, you know, someone who can really handle the ball and do a lot of things for him. You mentioned Lawrence, what a big season he had last year. Developed as a player, decides to come back. That was huge for them because now they've got one of the best backcourts in the SEC going into the season. To me, the question is just a matter of can everyone else continue to raise their games too? And you're going to undoubtedly have some of those breakout guys this year. I think Colin Smith's one of those guys probably that I would keep my eye on just because I think the opportunity is going to be there. Played well down the stretch last year. And like you said, whether it's a Dort, whether it's other guys like that, to me, you know, their season is going to pretty much be defined by the guys who are coming back that were younger last year and some of these guys that they've added to the mix as well. And can they just all sort of mesh together and be able to replace the production, you know, that you had from a Liam Robbins and obviously a Jordan Wright transfers to LSU and all that. I mean, those were key pieces of why Vanderbilt made such a big run at the end of the last season. So I think the roster is getting better from a depth standpoint. To me, it's just a matter of, I think they go as far as the backcourt can carry them. And that can be pretty far given how good those two guys in particular are. Yep. I think that those two guys in the backcourt are absolutely massive. Would like to see some of those guys that they've not necessarily been able to develop as freshmen and sophomore down low be able to take those strides forward. But certainly I do think that there's a lot of upside for Vanderbilt with that backcourt. And what I think is going to be interesting is this backcourt with LSU because it's a welcome back for Jalen Cook. I believe he needs a waiver to be eligible because this is his second transfer. So something to watch for there. But it was very clear what Matt McMahon had in season number one. It just did not work. And most of the guys that were on the roster last year, sounds like some of these ancillary pieces like Derek Fountain Company, they're now gone. And, well, see, yeah, I think that's just turning the page from what happened last year because it's a fresh crop of guys. They bring in Carlos Stewart, Will Baker, and company, and just pretty much look at this as your number one for Matt McMahon. It is still wild to look back on last season and think about how they started, which, again, they weren't winning a lot of games just in dominant fashion, even against teams you thought they should have blown out. They just weren't doing it, and so maybe that was kind of a hint that once they got an SEC play, they would lose more of those games and maybe find themselves struggling to win some close games and that's kind of what happened. And the offense just was something where you never really knew what you're going to get. I mean, they just could not score the ball consistently. And I think, like you said, Greg, the, the thing is, if Cook is there, that solves a big problem like that because we know he can score. He's just someone that would give them such a huge boost in that area. But if not, I still think there's a lot to like here, um, just in terms of, like I mentioned a minute ago, you've got a Jordan Wright transferring in. I mean, you've got someone who just has experience and I think that was one of the things last year is you did you know you had guys who played together but it's just like they had not had sort of that opportunity just to be able to take that huge step I think you know given where all the pieces were and Matt McMahon basically having to start from scratch even though he wound up getting some of those guys back so yeah I think this roster to me is probably more interesting than I thought uh, as I kind of dive more into it because you've got a lot of those guys we know too whether it's a Damian Collins I remember we talked about him in Kentucky we're like hey he's a breakout guy in Kentucky it's just you're at Kentucky and the problem is getting that playing time and getting that opportunity sometimes so Stewart mentioned him and just kind of going down the list. So, you know, I'd be shocked, Greg, if LSU's the worst team in the SEC this year, because to me, that would either mean that Jalen Cook doesn't get the waiver or they just once again cannot find their way offensively. But I think with the addition of a Jordan Wright and a Jalen Cook, I think those two guys specifically to me, I think they can carry Matt McMahon's team a bit further than we saw last year and really those SEC struggles they had. Yeah, a great non-conference slate for LSU in conference. Yeah. Things went horribly wrong, so they've got nowhere to go but up. 
with regards to our conference play. As joining me on the show, we've got Blake Lovell. He does tremendous work over at Southeastern 14, and this is the Southeast Conference preview edition of Coast to Coast Hoops. And when it comes to Georgia, this bunch just really couldn't find a lot down low after what happened with Kyron Lindsay coming out of the fold. So they did a nice job in the portal, bringing in RJ Melendez, bringing in Russell Chewa. I like those pieces. And I do think that Matthew Alexander Moncrief is really an upside guy. We saw what he was able to do at Oklahoma State. Granted, perhaps that was a little bit of a byproduct of Kate Cunningham being there as well. But I thought that he was someone that really went under the radar in the transfer portal. But I look at George and I do have my questions with how much Justin Hill and Noah Thomason is going to be able to elevate this team. Pair of up transfers that I just don't know if they're at SEC level quality. And with Georgia, it's a lot of random pieces that I think Mike White has potential with. But at the same time, I don't know how they come together. I think you said exactly how I would have put it, Greg. It feels like there's a lot of talent on the roster, but it does feel like it is basically just trying to load the roster with talent versus maybe having that luxury of being able to, all right, we're going to put this guy in this role, this guy in this role, and it all perfectly fits together as we go into the season. I think this is one of those where, you know, they're clearly going to sort of learn on the fly in terms of building the right rotations and the chemistry and how it comes together with everything. Because and that's not to blame Mike White, because remember, I mean, they are way out of schedule at this point. What he took over, we know, was a complete mess. And he comes in, they get to 500 last year, they went 16 games. They win six games in the SEC when they won six games overall the year before. They took a Big step as a program last year. May I look that way because they finished 11th in the league, but I still thought they did a lot of good things. And I think bringing some of these guys back now who were on that team and helped them kind of achieve that, like you said, whether it's a Moncrief, you've got a Dermarheem, all those kind of guys, Hills there as well uh, as, you know, the leading returner, I think, scoring wise. So those guys coming back, getting a little bit of that, hey, all right, this program is moving in the right direction. And now adding, you know, a Thomason to the mix, who to me is very intriguing. Obviously, the point totals helped there because Georgia was not a great offensive team last year. They didn't really do anything, I thought, well offensively. We knew the ball was probably either going to be in Terry Roberts' hands or Cario Quindo's hands. And now, you know, it's kind of an open canvas here. Who's going to be the guys? I think you're going to have much more kind of a balanced scoring load on this team. I think to me, Greg, Georgia could be the classic example of where this SEC is right now. I think they could be a better team than they were last year, but I think it's hard to move up, even if they are, just because I think there are a lot of teams in front of them that just probably have better rosters from top to bottom. But never discount Mike White, because I think, again, the pressure not exactly on at Georgia right now, and we saw how he succeeded last year with that. Absolutely. And mentioning one of those teams that might just have better rosters, how about his former stopping grounds at Florida? As with Florida, I really love what Riley Kugel was able to do towards the back half of the season. Though the Colin Castleton injury pretty much signaled the end of Florida's season and their hopes of the NCAA tournament, Kugel was really able to step up in the final 10 or so games of the season. I love what they bring in in the backcourt. Zion pulling. He was pulling in buckets while he was at UC Riverside. Walton Clayton Jr., just a good knockdown shooter over at Iona. I do have a little bit of question mark as to how perhaps someone like Pullen or Clayton is going to be able to run the offense as these are up transfers. But I do think that Micah Hamglotten being down low is nice, even though EJ Jarvis, as we found out, is going to be out for the season. Yeah, I think the Jarvis one was, to me, a bit of a blow because I think you expected when you looked at this roster, you know, hey, whether it was looking at Hamlogden, looking at Jarvis, looking at Tyree Samuel coming over from Seton Hall, you're like, all right, well, they're not going to completely replace Colin Castleton with one guy, but maybe as a group, you know, those three guys, if you just zone in on those three, 
there's a lot to like there. So I think losing a Jarvis out of that mix, that hurts a little bit because of just, you know, the experience factor and those kind of things. So yeah, maybe a little bit thinner down low than, than you would have liked, but I still like what Todd Golden did overall. In terms of what he's done with this roster, I think Clayton is obviously a huge addition just because, again, this is a team that I think needs exactly what he brings to the table. That was one of the things that they were missing last year. Pulling as well, you know, for me, as you know, Greg, someone who had covered the Big West for a while there, Blue Ribbon. I mean, it's just he's someone who was such a big part of what they did at UC Riverside. I think he fits in well into like the SEC style of play that we see now and especially what Golden wants to do at Florida. So Kugel will be the guy. I mean, I think he's going to wind up being one of the best players in the SEC this year. We kind of saw that breakout last year. We said this guy is only going up from here. And so I think having a guy like that who, to me, will be able to take over a game at any time, that's always a great thing to have. When you're in the SEC, you know you're going to play in some close games. His emergence, I think, is huge for just the program moving forward. But then it is really just seeing how some of these other pieces fit together, specifically in the front court for me. But, yeah, I think that backcourt is going to be one that's a lot of fun to watch, what they can do on the perimeter this year. And again, Will Richard, we know, is really going to help them from a just a three-point shooting standpoint, too, because that was a team. I think, you know, again, with the style that Florida wants to play under Todd Golden, they don't want to be shooting 31% from three like they did last year. So I think that goes up this year. Clear focus on that. And I would expect Florida to be an improved team this season. And you're talking about Florida's three-point shooting. There's nowhere to go but up for Mississippi State. <laughs> Out of 363 teams, their three-point shooting percentage was 363rd. And there's only 362 D1 teams this year. So by default, they will be better in terms of rankings for three-point shooting percentage. But with Mississippi State, the big question becomes, when does Tulu Smith come back in the fold? Guy that averaged 15.5 points, 8.5 boards, about 48, 72 hours before we did this podcast, we found out he's going to be out until SEC play, and that's big because I personally was very high on Mississippi State before that news, and now it becomes, can Jimmy Bell Jr., DJ Jeffries, and those guys hold down the fort for what I think is going to be an improved team with Andrew Taylor coming in from Marshall, 20-point-per-game score that should be able to elevate that three-point shooting that I mentioned a minute ago. You know, I remember going into the season last year, and I was half-joking when I said, I think Mississippi State could be the worst shooting team in the country. I really was just saying that, just looking and saying, I don't know where they're going to get the threes from, but I never thought they would actually be the worst shooting team in the country, Greg, in all honesty, but they were. The Toulouse-Smith injury, to me, is one where this was not a great offensive team last year. This was an elite defensive team, and he was part of that. And I think you're going to see, without him on the floor, I just feel like they're going to have to play differently. And I think that may be something that's very intriguing for Chris Jantz here as he looks at this team without him on the floor because he was someone that you knew kind of everything could be able to go through him as a, you know, a 6'11 guy in the post, all the experience, you know, you knew he was helping out in a lot of different areas. But I think offensively, that's where maybe I have some concerns, but I'm also curious just to see how they play. Like you said, whether it's a Bell, whether it's a Taylor, guys like that. I'm just very curious to see what they look like offensively because there were so many of those games it felt like you look at some of those SEC games last year, they were a grind where it was all about kind of just defensive stops. They weren't going to score a ton of points. Uh, They were winning games, you know, 60-something to 50-something. That was exactly what Mississippi State had to do last year. And I think it's going to be more of that, at least for a while he's out, because I still think the defense is going to be pretty good. But remember, you are having someone off the floor for a while here that just was a great rebounder, could block some shots, leading scorer, all those things. But in the meantime, hoping he comes back, you know, early January, which will be kind of at the start of SEC play. If he does... 
everything's good to go. I still think, Greg, this is one of those teams that has a lot of upside in the SEC just because they have a star in Smith. They've got a lot to build around. And like you said, the shooting can't go anywhere but up. And I think they will be better in that area. Not sure exactly how much. But yeah, I think this is going to be a really good Mississippi State team, assuming that Toulouse Smith comes back or ready to go towards the start of SEC play. Yep, let's hope so as well, because that is going to be so massive for this bunch, and I absolutely love what they bring to the table. But losing him for what is going to be at the very minimum non-conference play is going to be tough, as Blake Bubble does great work over at Southeastern 14. is joining me right here on Coast to Coast and let's take a look at the other Mississippi team. That'd be Ole Miss, and... This is the biggest question mark in the SEC, in my opinion. We don't know if Brandon Murray and Musa Cisse are going to get a waiver to be able to play. Now, good news is Elm Flanagan is eligible. I think that he like put in to enter into the transfer portal a little bit later, something like that. The NCAA applies. You're allowing him to play. And that trio of Matthew Morell, Alan Flanagan, and Jamin Brakefield, I think it's going to be rock solid. You've got size, versatility. Guys are able to pop threes. I like what they bring to the table. And then you get figuratively and literally the biggest transfer in all of college basketball, Jermaine Sharp, who averaged north of four blocks per contest. Absolutely tremendous. But the question becomes, how much depth is this team going to have? Because Chris Beard, he always wants to have a lot of options with regards to a defense-oriented team. And I think he's finding the pieces for the team to be much better on defense. So a few question marks with regards to the offense as well. If they have everyone, which to me would probably be a surprise at this point, I don't think that everyone will get a waiver. Uh, if they do, though, I think this is the team that certainly, you want to talk about it, makes the biggest jump this year. There's no doubt in my mind that they can all of a sudden be an NCAA tournament team and really be right there competing with teams near the top of the league. I really think that Beard kind of has that effect from a coaching standpoint and just with the way the roster looks. But like you said, even if maybe, you know, a couple of those other guys aren't eligible, although I think not to say Cissé's not, but I think Murray would be significant just from the scoring standpoint and what he could bring to the table there. But I still like that trio. Matthew Morrell, I think, has always been one of the more underrated guards in the SEC, just played on the team that you know, had its struggles offensively. And then, you know, a breakfield, I think another one who is kind of underrated in terms of what he can do there and everything that he kind of brings to the table. And so I think there's a lot on this team that Flanagan mentioned, someone who we saw when he was at Auburn and he was healthy. I mean, he can play. Like, he again, there was a reason he was at Auburn. Oh, just because his dad was there. Like, he can play. He's an SEC player. And I think that, you know, now we kind of have that experience of someone like him. Morell's experience at this point. Breakfield, we know, can do a lot of different things for this team. So if it is that trio leading the way I still think Ole Miss can do a lot of things there are still going to be some questions I think offensively but we've just seen it so many times with Chris Beard they may not be a great defensive team from day one but I would be willing to bet by the time you get to February and March they are going to be a team you're not going to want to play from a defensive standpoint and you know we saw some of that last year obviously different coaching regime but they've been a decent defensive team from that standpoint so yeah I think Ole Miss is probably the biggest wild card Greg because if they get more of those guys cleared, ready to go. There's a lot to like about this team, and you're one under Chris Beard. Yep, I agree with you. You do want to be checking in on whether or not those guys get waivers, but even if not, you still have Jamarian Sharp. You still have that trio that I was mentioning before. So lots of upside there. Don't think there's as much upside with this team, though, as for South Carolina. This just doesn't look like an SEC roster. I wish I could put it any other way. And Michi Johnson had some nice moments last year, but you're bringing in someone in B.J. Mack who was he solid at Wofford? Yes, he was. He doesn't feel like an SEC-level big man, though. And with Gigi Jackson on the full, pretty much the only guy that could pull out a rebound for the team, I think it's going to be brutal. Talon Cooper was able to put up some solid numbers at Morehead State and Minnesota additionally. But 
I take a look at this team and there's no place I could put them other than dead last. Yeah, that's the problem is that it's just hard to look at their roster and compare it to everyone else and find a way to pick them above the other 13 teams. That's the issue right now for South Carolina. And look, I like, you know, Cooper. I think he's someone that I would be surprised if he's not, you know, kind of one of the driving forces on this team. I mean, he has to be if they're going to win some games. Same thing with Mac. I think he's in kind of that same spot where, Look, it's just a team that didn't do a lot of things well last year, and that's the reason they won 11 games. That's not Lamont Paris's fault because we said coming in, I thought that he probably had the, the furthest to go in terms of building a program to where they needed it to be to compete with all these teams in the SEC right now. Like, I just think it's not something they've been able to do like, again, I guess maybe Chris Beard's a good example, but we've seen other coaches come in before kind of in year one and just completely try to you know, piece everything together roster-wise. I just don't think that's what South Carolina is able to do right now as a program. So they kind of have to take what they can get at this point. So, yeah, I'm with you, Greg. It's hard to probably put it nicely at this point, just given kind of what the roster looks like. They'll do what they did last year, I think. They'll be competitive in some games. They'll maybe beat a couple people people think they shouldn't beat. But, yeah, it's just hard to see South Carolina being anything other than the, the 14 team right now, unless some of these guys maybe around those top two really take a huge step forward. Yeah, it's going to be the epitome of brutality, in my opinion, for South Carolina. So that's going to be a little bit rough. And now we get to that time of the show where we take a look at this team and we know the script already for Arkansas. Slow start, big finish. With this Arkansas team, I do like the fact that they're more based around veterans rather than freshmen. Last year, they had Nick Smith and all those tremendous freshmen. And this year, it's a little bit more based on transfers. L. Ellis, Khalif Battle coming in to be able to elevate that backcourt. And Jeremiah Davenport, do not sleep on him. I think that he's a big piece as well. But I really think when it's all said and done, this is a team that's going to be headlined by Devontae Davis. But the big question is, what are you going to be able to get down low on uh, Trevon Brazil? Because I think that he could be the biggest X factor, not just for this team, but I think in all of college basketball, he might be one of the biggest X factors. And if he's able to show what he was able to show in the very, very limited amount of time that he played last year, on top of that, the foreign trip that I saw from him last year, there's a lot of upside here for Arkansas. You said it as well as anybody could, Greg, because to me, Brazil is the ultimate X factor here because if he comes back and like you said is the player that we saw before he got injured he can be one of the top five players in the SEC this year like that's how good he is and I think that's how much potential he has and we saw you know even in just an offseason going from Missouri to Arkansas the way he had already kind of evolved his game to be able to do a lot of different things like if he is ready to go and he steps in seamlessly kind of into this rotation and that starting role, which he will absolutely have if he's good to go. They have so many different pieces on this roster that Davis is a returning guy with a ton of experience. He played, what, 100-something games in the SEC now. You know, he's their leader on the floor. Getting him back, I thought, was as big as anybody in the SEC. Getting a returner back is getting just Nebo Davis. We've seen him take over in games in the NCAA tournament. But you said, too, think about what they're adding to the mix. And we say this every year with Eric Musselman because we know he's going to bring in multiple transfers every year. But you add a Davenport to the mix, who I think is someone that's going to clearly help them from a shooting standpoint, and just like many other SEC teams, Arkansas had a really hard time shooting the ball last year. He's going to help in that category. There are other guys who are going to be able to help in that category, whether it's Khalif Battle, other guys like that. And I think this is a team that clearly, Ellis, certainly someone I think from a scoring standpoint is going to be able to help. I think you look at all the guys he brought in, and I think it's very clear they are addressing certain needs. And Tremont Mark, to me, is another guy that I think is the ultimate kind of player that they need coming from a Houston team that was the number one team in the country for as long as they were last year 
started all 37 games for that year, just a winner. And I think when you blend all the pieces together, you said it from the start. Front court, maybe not as much depth, but when you look at all the pieces they have elsewhere, this is a team that can play 10 guys minimum. Not that they will, but I think they have that many guys who can contribute. So to me, Arkansas is one of the best teams probably in the SEC going into the season. Yeah, I think this is the deepest team that Eric Musselman's had there. Yeah, I think that this team does have a ton of depth, and I do think that this team has a ton of upside. Once again, probably going to lose a few games out of conference, but that's the Arkansas experience that we sign up for every single year. And that's sort of the Kentucky experience that we sign up for every single year. And with Kentucky, they really went the transfer route the last few years. This year, they're going back to freshmen. And we do want to be checking in on Aaron Bradshaw. He's been dealing with a bit of an injury, a seven-footer that's got so much versatility. So very much want to be taking a look there. But DJ Wagner, Justin Edwards, if you could find me a better pair of freshmen in the country, I would be very impressed because I mean, these two guys are going to be awesome. You pair them up with Antonio Reeves, Trey Mitchell, love what they're able to bring to the table. But I think the question marks are, what are you going to be able to get out of the likes of Robert Dillingham, Ogunda Onyeso, hopefully I said that correctly, these sorts of guys. Because other than Antonio Reeves and for a little bit of a lesser extent, Onyeso as well, really no returning experience for a team with all sorts of talent, but all sorts of youth. I think the way I look at this team is like, is this Cal's last stand? Because it's one of those things where we know Kentucky fans have gotten frustrated. But like, if this is like, he has built the team that is ready to sort of withstand the battle here. Because I think this is a team, you said it, I mean, just from a freshman standpoint, right? Like, would it shock anyone if Justin Edwards winds up being the SEC player of the year? Of course not. Because he is just a do-it-all kind of playmaker. We know he's already projected as probably the number one pick in next year's draft. I mean, that shifts around a little bit, but I, I'd be surprised if he's not in the top couple picks. And when you just look at it from that standpoint, that's a great starting point in terms of that Edwards-Wagner combo. But it's also getting Antonio Reeves back, who I think will be able to get better offensive rhythm going than maybe the last year, because I think that was a team that wasn't necessarily built for Antonio Reeves' strengths. I think this team, it opens up a lot more opportunities for him offensively and maybe a lot more open shots to where there's no, you know, having to force a lot because teams can't take their eyes off of Justin Edwards and a Wagner with what he's going to be able to do with the ball in his hands. When you consider it from that standpoint, that's enough right there to me for Kentucky to be a great team. But then it is Bradshaw coming back. If he's good to go, he is so talented as a freshman. And then it's Trey Mitchell, right? It's the added experience of getting Antonio Reeves back, which for a while there, we didn't know if that was going to happen. But then it's getting Trey Mitchell. And I think just having a little bit of experience in those guys, if you take one or the other off of this roster, maybe you temper your expectations a little bit. But I think having both, having those guys on the floor regularly to help out these younger guys, that to me is kind of that recipe that if you're not going to have senior, 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 like we've seen, you know, some teams have. You've got to have kind of someone, though, that can kind of lead the way. And I think Kentucky's going to have that with this team. I really like the way that Cal built this roster. But as always, Greg, it's going to be the same questions. How does the chemistry come together? And will they evolve offensively? Because Cal has said he's going to let them shoot more threes. He's going to let them do things offensively. Maybe we haven't seen in recent years. But it, will he actually do it? If he does... I think the sky is the limit for this Kentucky team. Yep, I think so as well with Kentucky. They've got so much talent on the roster. How does it come together? That is a question mark. It's Blake Lovell. It does amazing work over at Southeastern 14. It's joining me right here on Coast Coast Hoops. And now it is that time of the podcast where we give our love to Dennis Gates. We do it every <laughs> single year. And with this Missouri team, depth is not going to be an issue. This is a team that's going to be able to go nine plus deep. I mean, even guys like Asus Calvalero, along with Tamar Bates coming into the fold, they're going to be able to see some minutes. 
the big question becomes, you've got one guy that really saw massive minutes last year that is north of six foot eight, and that is Connor Vanover coming over from Oral Roberts. And how are they going to be able to perform on the glass? Because John Tonjay, Nick Honor, Caleb Grill, these guys are awesome in the backcourt. They bring in Kurt Lewis, who I think is going to be tremendous, one of the best junior college transfers in all of college basketball. But I think if Missouri could just find a little bit more rebounding, that's really what they need to be able to elevate and really become an even bigger threat out there in the SEC. Yeah, we know that was an issue last season. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that was something where they were able to hide some of those weaknesses, which we know they had them defensively, especially early on in the season. Still kind of reared its ugly head a bit at times down the stretch. But the rebounding, the defensive inconsistency, that was able to kind of be pushed aside by how great they were offensively. And that surprised a lot of us because we knew had some good offensive players, but boy, I don't know that we expected them to be an elite offensive team the way that they were. Now you lose a Kobe Brown, you lose a DeMoy Hodge, who were the two big reasons for that. DeAndre Golston was too. So there's a lot of talent that's not on the roster this year that was on the roster last year. And so how do they replace, you know, those three guys in particular, I think is a very valid question. But I think you're also going to say, we didn't really give Dennis Gates a lot of credit. Well, not you and I, Greg. Most people didn't give Dennis Gates a lot of credit for his ability to turn things around as quickly as he did a season ago. Even I would have said I didn't think they could get as far as they did. But he was able to find the right guys and put them in the position to have that success. And that's what exactly what I expect you know, from a Tamar Bates coming in and being able to step in and be someone who can contribute like that. We would expect the same from John Tanja, I think, coming in. Very intriguing to see, you know, kind of what he adds to the mix here on this Missouri team, surrounded by Noah Carter and Nick Honor still there, Sean East, how he continues to develop, and guys like that. So, and Vanover, of course, too. I think Vanover is such a, you know, kind of wild card here because we know he started Arkansas, goes to Roberts, now he comes back to Missouri. I think a much more polished, experienced player that will help him in the SEC, you know, and then you've got other guys too, Kurt Lewis and guys like that. So you know what I'm going to say here, Greg. I mean, you can look at the roster and there may be people who rank Missouri's overall roster a bit lower than some other teams, but it's the Dennis Gates effect. At this point, you can't doubt the man. Um, he's still, as I've told you years for years now, he's still one of the best young coaches, I think, in college basketball. And he proved it last year. And I think that while this team is going to maybe be missing a Kobe Brown, DeMoy Hodge, Golston, those kind of guys, I still think they find a way to put it enough together to get back to the NCAA tournament. I've been very impressed by what Missouri has been able to do over the last few years now. Going to be brutal in the SEC just to be able to make the top half because there's so many good teams out there but I love Dennis Gates as a coach and you know who else I love as a coach Bruce Pearl and I take a look at this Auburn team and I see a lot of people picking them towards the middle of the SEC and I'm much higher on this Auburn team personally I think that G&I Broom coming back along Dylan Cardwell is big I feel like exactly what they needed was some three-point shooting Denver Jones comes in Chad Baker Mazzara I feel like might be the best junior college transfer in all of college basketball I just take a look top to bottom at this Auburn team I think that they are so complete because now they finally have some three-point shooting. And I think that Auburn could legitimately challenge as a top three team in the SEC. Yeah, I like this Auburn team too. And look, I, you gotta, we can repeat the same theme with some of these teams that they clearly went out and said, hey, we got to improve our shooting. And I think Auburn is another team that will improve its shooting this season. Now, there are a lot of great defensive teams in the SEC, and that's one of the reasons why teams have struggled. But, you know, they were another one that kind of shot around that 31% mark last year. And so Bruce Pearl went out. That was one of those teams last year that, 
had its ups and downs, but, you know, really struggled down the stretch. But I think having Broom, who is, again, I think you could probably pick, to me, Janai Broom, Tolu Smith, SEC Player of the Year, wouldn't be shocked if either one of those guys won it. And I think having Broom on this team is going to be great to have because I think, you know, as we always say, Greg, guys that are big men that want to get to the NBA, what do they always want to work on? They always want to work on expanding their role in terms of shots. And can he step out and start making some shots? If he can, they've got some guys around him that we know they're going to be able to make some shots, whether that's a Denver Jones coming into the mix. You know, I'd be shocked if he's not one of the better scorers on the roster this season. Coming over from FIU, obviously he's used to playing an up-tempo style, playing for Jeremy Ballard. Jalen Williams, I mean, he is a fantastic, I think, forward in the SEC and doesn't always get the credit he deserves. Uh, but I think when you have a Broom, you have a Williams, Dylan Cardwell, another seven-foot guy, and just, you know, the physicality that he brings to the mix. But it really is, I think, seeing how this guard group, Greg, really evolves. Because when we talk about great Bruce Pearl teams, it feels like we're always talking about teams that have, you know, really, really good guard play. I think Aiden Holloway, Denver Jones, you know, a Trey Donaldson, of course, Katie Johnson's back for what seems like his 15th season in college basketball. So you've got all those guys and just kind of how that backcourt rotation pans out from a minute standpoint is probably the biggest question for me because I think all of these guys are talented. But ultimately, you know, I'd be shocked if we're not looking at the end of the season and saying, hey, Aiden Holloway's become like that next great point guard for Bruce Pearl or a Denver Jones has kind of really continued that scoring threat that we know that he brings to the table because everything else to me is pretty much, you feel good about Broom being one of the best players in the league. Jalen Williams, Cardwell, all those guys, but I think some of those additions like that, and even a Chad Baker, Mazzaro, someone else too, can make shots you know, for him as well. I like the depth on this Auburn team, and I really do think that when you just look at it overall, this is one of those teams that I think is, you know, it's not going to match perhaps the, the Final Four team he had several years ago, but roster-wise, I think there's a lot to like here with this one. Yep, I think that there's a ton to like with this Auburn team as well as there's always tons of like when Blake Lovell's aboard. He does amazing work over at Southeastern 14, and we're doing the SEC Conference Preview Edition right here on Coast Coast Hoops. And when it comes to this team, lots and lots of moving parts. That'd be Alabama. And I do have my fears with this Alabama team. I do like the fact that Mark Sears is back in the fold, and I do like what they brought in in the transfer portal with some like of Latrell Bright. So you've got Aaron Estrada coming in as well. But you have to wonder, those guys taking a leap up from the mid-major level up to the SEC, how are they going to translate? And on top of that, for Alabama, the reason why they had their success last year is that they were much better defensively than we have seen from Alabama in the past. Now you lose Noah Clowney. Now you lose Brandon Miller, guys with lots of versatility that were able to hit the glass. I like Grant Nelson, and he's got a lot of physical attributes, but at the same time, He's on a North Dakota State team that wasn't very good on defense, and that's a big question mark that you have with Alabama because you know they're going to score. You know they're going to run. Are they going to play defense? Well, and that to me was like for everything we said last year about, yes, they have a Brandon Miller. We know that. They had other guys that could just score and take over games. But he was the biggest one. We could say all that, but I think still the reason Alabama was as good as Alabama was last year to being the number one seed in the NCAA tournament was because they were so good defensively. You know, you can look to the year before and say, what happens when you have a drop-off defensively? I mean, we, we remember just how inconsistent that team was the year before. They could go out and beat this team, and they turn around and lose the worst team in the SEC. That's just kind of the season that they had. And it's because they weren't a good defensive team. That was the problem. If I'm looking at this team this year and I don't see a Brandon Miller, I don't see a Noah Clowney, I don't see a Charles Bediaco, you know, I don't see other guys as well that were, you know, I guess you could certainly add a Jermon Quinterly to the mix. But if you just think about those three big guys from a defensive standpoint, they're not there. 
And I think that is probably – look, Alabama does not lack talent. They've not lacked scoring ability on this team. Like you said, there's still a lot there in terms of Mark Sears coming back. Mark Sears is going to be fine. He's going to score. You know, I think Estrada and Wrightsell, like you said, they are transferring up. But I think just in this system, I think they're going to be okay from a scoring standpoint. Same thing with Nelson. But from the overall depth standpoint and just the defensive standpoint, I don't even wonder, Greg. I can't imagine they're going to be a top three defensive team like they were last year. I just don't think that's going to happen. If they are, (laughs) sign them up again to be the number one seed in the tournament because that will greatly exceed expectations. But I still think because Nate Oates, we know how they're going to play. That style is really hard to prepare for. I think they've still got a roster here that's going to be able to excel in the style they want to play. But if they have a drop-off defensively, which they're going to have, I just don't think there's any other way to put it, can they continue to you know, still kind of make up some of that, that that maybe they lost from last year? I don't know. I think that's a fair question with Alabama. I will say I'm probably a little lower on Alabama than most people are going in the season. Not that I don't think they're you know kind of that top 25 range type team, but I think it's at least one of those that I would like to take a wait-and-see approach with just from that standpoint, specifically looking at the defense and seeing how that comes together this season. And we've seen Alabama be a little bit hit or miss in recent years as well with them really kicking it up tempo because when you kick it up tempo, that allows you to be able to open up big leads, but it allows those big leads to evaporate quite quickly as well. So lots of question marks there with Alabama. And then let's take a look at this bunch, a team that – it's not going to be kicking at super-duper up-tempo, and they really do hang their head on defense, and you know what's going to be happening on defense. You know that it's going to be locked down. It's always a question of the offense, and that would be Tennessee. And for Tennessee, they've always been rock-solid in SEC play. The one thing with Rick Barnes is he has not been able to get over the hump in the NCAA tournament. I think that if you're evaluating Tennessee in terms of how they're going to do during the regular season versus how they're going to do in the postseason, your projections are probably going to change a little bit. But I do like the fact that they brought in Dalton Connect, 20-point-per-game score, that was able to light it up for Northern Colorado. And that was really a missing piece for this team because with the guy Ziegler, you don't know when you're going to be able to get him back if you're going to be able to get him back this season. But bringing back Josiah Jordan-James was big. And Santiago Vescovi, it feels like his Van Wilder of SEC basketball. He's just so efficient with the ball. And now being able to get him a shooter like Connect to be able to help him out, I think is massive. I feel like it's just rinse and repeat with Tennessee right now. They're going to be an elite defensive team. You're not going to have any questions about that. They're, they're going to be a great defensive team, I think, with the roster they put out there. Now, of course, not having Ziegler for a while and depending on when he comes back. Now, that takes a little bit of a hit because to me, I thought he was the best defensive player in the SEC last year. You know, if you just look at it from a guarding standpoint, whereas Colin Castleton, Probably the best defensive player just from how he made an impact last year at Florida. But you take that out of the the equation. I still think, you know, roster-wise to me, I think Tennessee is the best team in the SEC going into the season. And I think that if you're projecting out and you project that Ziegler is going to return, I think that only strengthens the argument there just in terms of where they're at going into the season. But that is all, too, going to depend on one thing as well, Greg. It's This is a team, think about it, like Vescovy's missed some time with injuries. Josiah Jordan-James, who you know I think has always been one of those guys, one of the more versatile players, not just in the SEC, but I think in college basketball, He's missed time with injuries too. So it's keeping everyone on the floor and knowing that you're not going to have your, you know, Zeeler as well. But I think that's where a Freddie DeLeon comes in. And I think he's not getting enough love so far in terms of he's going to be the guy that runs the show here. 
at point guard. And that gives, you know, Vescovy a lot of opportunities, I think, off the ball. De Leon is someone who's going to come in right away. Great playmaker, I think, at the point guard position. 6'5", all that. He's got the size. And so I'm really excited to see kind of how he's able to kind of run this thing offensively. Maybe he's exactly what they need to be able to really improve. Are they still going to have some of those stretches offensively? I don't know. But I do think he gives them a little maybe something there that could help push them forward from that standpoint. And someone else, Toby Awaka, has been the breakout player of the summer. If you just look at what he did for Team USA at that U19 World Cup, just a tremendous talent that we've kind of known that he's a tremendous talent. It was just kind of waiting for that breakout. And I think this is it. So if you add all that together with Dalton Connect joining the mix and scoring-wise, I just think that this Tennessee team is deep. They've got a lot of options. I think offensively, you're not really concerned about the defense because that's going to be there with a Waka, with a Do, and those guys. And again, James and Ziegler coming back, Bescovy can guard. I look at all these options, and I've been mentioning a Jordan Ganey to this point, a Jemiah Mayshack. I think Tennessee is an elite team, but like you said, maybe they're an elite team in the regular season. What happens in the NCAA tournament to be determined. Yep, what happens in the NCAA tournament is CBD, but. With regards to the regular season, I feel like we know what we are going to be able to get out of Tennessee. And we've got one more team to break down. And it was one of the most intriguing teams in all of college basketball last year in Texas A&M. I still remember when the team lost at home to Wofford. And how things were not looking great there. And then Texas A&M becomes the number two team out there in the SEC. And they bring back darn near everyone. Last year was a whole is greater than the sum of its parts team. And they've got a lot of pieces around this guy. But... Wade Taylor, I believe, is a fringe All-American candidate. I think that this guy is in for an absolutely tremendous season. I love his overall game. And then you've got around him, someone like Emmanuel Obaseki, who his season was cut a little bit short, but he's a good three-point shooter. Henry Coleman, Therese Radford, these guys are able to hit the boards in terms of Radford. Gives a lot of good play out there on the perimeter as well. This team defends. This team is deep. I really like this Texas A&M team, and I believe that they're going to be there when it's all said and done in the top three in the SEC. Yeah, I'm with you. I think, you know, you put that to me, Tennessee, Texas A&M. I mean, it's, I could go probably deeper than that, but it's just, yeah, like you could certainly make the argument that A&M is the best team in the league going this season, and I wouldn't be that against it because, like you said, they may have the best player in the SEC going into the year in Wade Taylor. You talk about just what a remarkable season he had last year, and he just became that dude, and that's what they needed on that team. They needed someone to be that dude, and he became them. You know, you know what you're getting out of a Buzz Williams team. They're going to be aggressive defensively. Now, they do lose a Dexter Dennis, who was a big part of, I think, their defensive approach last year and just kind of, you know, how they defended and all that. But I still look at this team and say, hey, they'll figure it out because we know how Buzz Williams teams play. They're going to be able to plug in different guys. And we know, again, they're going to defend. I think a Jace Carter, to me, Greg, someone joining the mix there from UIC, I think he's a great addition in terms of the Buzz Williams type player. I said, you know, this summer, I'm like, he feels like a buzz guy. That's how they always say, buzz guys. That's what he is to me. I think he's going to you know, make a huge impact, whether it's Marble, Coleman, those two guys with returning with the experience that they have too, Radford, someone else that just, man, he has just continued to grow his game over the years. One through five, I think A&M is going to be really hard to handle. Then I think it's just seeing you know, how the guys like an Obaseki continues to develop overall and all of those different guys that are returning too from last year. That, like you said, they pretty much got a ton of guys coming back, even with some new guys joining the mix too. So love this Texas A&M team. You talk about a team, you just don't expect there to be a drop-off. I don't know if they go 15-3. and three. They got a great shot just because I think the roster is just as good as it was last year. Oh, I do think that this is an incredible roster, and I think that this is going to be a lot of fun to see what we get in the SEC. Not sure if we've got a Final Four contender in the SEC, but we've got a lot of teams that are going to be in the top 25. We've got a lot of teams that are going to be in the NCAA tournament. And Blake, 
You're going to be there for every step of the way. You do amazing work over there at Southeastern 14, taking a look at this game that we all know and love. And you also do a great job covering that thing called college football as well. Apparently, some people have heard of it and love it as well. So love the good people at home. Know it's all on tap for you and how people can follow along on social media and other platforms. Yeah, I always appreciate it, Greg. Like you said, the Southeastern 14, you go to YouTube, search for Southeastern 14. Now we've got all of our college basketball preview stuff. Uh, we're getting ready, you know, team previews for the upcoming season. We're starting doing kind of some daily SEC basketball stuff here starting soon. So, yeah, got a lot of fun stuff over there to get you ready for the upcoming season and everything else. You can follow me on Twitter, slash X, at the Blake level. And Blake does an amazing job taking a look at this game every single time he joins his podcast. One's absolutely amazing insights, and it's always appreciated. A big thanks to Blake for joining me right here. I'm Coast Good Soup Sound, part of the Visa Family Podcast. And coming up next, it is that time of the podcast. I give you my projector or finish for all 14 teams in the SEC. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here lovely Las Vegas for Ghost Kissing with myself, Greg Ips Peterson, now part of the Visa Family Podcast. It is always great to get Blake Lovell aboard. He does amazing work over there at Southeastern 14, taking a look at the great game of college basketball. He's joining me for so many conference previews in so many different seasons. Every single time he joins this podcast, he lends amazing insights. 
It is going to be a just whale of a ride with regards to this SEC this season. I personally just don't see one clear Final Four contender, but I see a lot of teams are going to be very rock solid. Blake, he's going to be along for the ride. He does such good work. Just taking a look at this fine conference, which I know that the joke comes up from time to time when he joins this podcast. He is going to need to change a name at some point of Southeastern for a team with all the conference realignment, but those guys over there do amazing work, and every single time Blake is aboard, he does a great job of giving us the good. So a big thanks to Blake for joining me right here on Seeps, now part of the Visa Family Podcast. Friendly reminder that because I am doing a conference preview today, all the news and notes we saw in college basketball on Sunday, those are going to be rounded up tomorrow. So we've got you guys all covered there. So now let's dive in with regards to my projector or finish and with regards to Dead Last, in terms of my projector or finish, I think that it's very clear here. It is going to be South Carolina. Now, if there is a little bit of upside, I like what I saw to Michi Johnson towards the back half of the year last year for South Carolina. They didn't stop fighting on Lamont Paris. They were able to rise up. They were able to pull off a few upsets towards the back half of the season, but it's really rough. Like with Michi Johnson, he's able to give you about three and a half assists per contest. He's a pretty solid score for the team, but now you lose your top three-point shooting option in Chico Carter from a team that, quite frankly, it's not like they were doing an amazing job of making their threes to start with. And bringing in Talon Cooper is going to allow him to play off the ball a little bit more, but I just don't see how this backcourt is necessarily going to be able to hold up for one and two. You just really don't have size with this team. You bring in B.J. Mack from Wofford, who I needed an okay job of being able to pull in a few rebounds at Wofford, but... Man, Miles Dute, he's going to be coming in at like six foot seven. You've got one seven footer in Josh Gray, who's probably not going to be seeing the court a lot. This is just not an SEC level roster. I think that this team is just going to be eaten alive. I just don't see how they're going to be able to do a solid job on the glass with Gigi Jackson being out of the fold. It's a South Carolina team that I think is going to very much struggle this year. I have them number 14 with regards to my projector finish. And number 13, we are going to be going with Georgia. With Georgia, they're just once again relying upon a bunch of up transfers that I don't think are necessarily up to standard with regards to the SEC. Now, I like Matthew Alexander Moncrief. He was a solid player while he was over at Oklahoma State. We saw him get a little bit less burn the last few seasons, but if he's able to refine that form that he had during his freshman year while he was at Oklahoma State, nine points per contest, I was part of that Kate Cunningham team. Not a guy that's going to go out there and light it up from three-point range, but at six foot seven, former top one recruit, I think that there's a little bit of upside there, and I like Jalen Deloach. He had 10 points, seven rebounds per contest when he was over at VCU. I just don't know if he's necessarily the world's greatest fit over there at Georgia. Georgia's not a team that's going to go out there and try to generate a whole bunch of steals or anything like that. I do feel like Georgia is going to be able to have a little bit more down low with Russell Chewa coming into the fold from South Florida. That'll help. And Justin Hill had his moments last year, but you're lying upon Noah Thomason, who I knew was solid out there in the Metro Atlantic. Now you have to step up and be the man for an SEC school. RJ Melendez has a little bit of upside, but once again, didn't see a lot of minutes over there at Illinois. Massive question marks with regards to Georgia. Not a lot of three-point shooting with this team as well, so I do think that it's going to be a big-time struggle for our good friends over there at Georgia. I've got them number 13 with regards to my projector or finish. At number 12, we're going to be going with LSU. With LSU, it was honestly a very good start to the year last year for them, and then things went down the toilet bowl, but you're going to be having to rely upon Jalen Cook being eligible because he is a two-time transfer, and 
We are not sure of that. And whether or not Cook is in slash out of the fold, this doesn't change my opinion too much of LSU just because I do think that they are a little bit up against it now. What I do like for this team is bringing in Carlos Stewart. Carlos Stewart was able to do some nice work while he was over at Santa Clara. A double-figure score that's able to light it up from three-point range. And Will Baker is a seven-footer. He should be eligible. I believe that he is a graduate transfer. He's able to pop threes. That is very good for the team. But with LSU, you tell that everything just went horribly wrong for the team towards the back half of last season. They've been just going through a bunch of transfers like a turnstile. They just weren't able to find their form. I do like the fact that they picked up Jordan Wright. He's got a lot of familiarity out there in the SEC, having played at Vanderbilt, but I just don't know how the pieces are necessarily going to be able to fit together with Will Baker. He's solid at being able to stretch the floor. Not necessarily a great rebounder. You're going to need to get a lot out of Derek Fountain. Trey Hannibal, I just don't think, is an SEC-level guy. They didn't bring a lot with regards to freshmen in as well, so there are question marks here with LSU. I do think that they're going to be better than what they were a season ago, and I do think that Matt McMahon is a relatively solid coach, but... He had to really have a bit of a roster overhaul from last year. The transfers that he brought in just did not work. So this is essentially year number one for Mr. McMahon. And I do think that he's going to be able to build some upper momentum. But I do think that it's going to be a struggle once again. I do have LSU at number 12 with regards to my projector or finish. At number 11, I'm going to be going with Missouri. Missouri was able to get away with having absolutely no rebounding last year. And they do bring in Connor Vanover. Connor Vanover is awesome. I mean, a guy that stands. Some people listed him at seven foot five. I think that he's closer to about seven foot three. But when I was at Oral Roberts, he was able to do some really nice work. Twelve and a half points, seven boards, three blocks. He's able to pop threes. But we've tried him in the SEC before. When he was over at Arkansas, he had a year where he was a starter, where he averaged six points, four and a half boards, one point eight blocks per contest. I think this time around, he should be able to have a little bit more success. And let's call it what it is when you're at Arkansas. It's uh, there's a arms race with regards to minutes, and it is good that he comes in from an up-tempo style like Oral Roberts. I do think that he is going to be able to make that transition, but pass that, you really have nothing with regards to rebounding. I like Caleb Grill when he was fully healthy while he was over there at Iowa State. He was really a heart and soul player for this team, and I do think that he's going to be able to elevate this bunch. You've got a lot of depth. I just don't know who's necessarily going to be the go-to guy for this team, though, and I mean, that could be a positive. That could be a negative. Noah Carter, I do think has quite a bit of upside with him. Sean East II is relatively solid at being able to dole the ball out, but I do think that eventually the lack of rebounding, I do think the fact that this team, they're all or nothing when it comes to being able to generate seals. This was one of the best teams in the country last year in terms of turnovers forced on a per-possession basis, but they allowed a whole bunch of wide-open threes. I do think that that is going to be costly for this Missouri team, and I do think that loss of really that heart and soul player in Jordan Brown from last year, who he just absolutely tore it up. He did so many things for the team. I think that that is something that cannot be understated. I do have Missouri at number 11 in my projector or finish as a result. At number 10, I am good to be going with Vanderbilt. With Vanderbilt, I just believe that Jerry Stackhouse is a very underrated coach, and Ezra Magnon, a guy that I was very surprised by last season, an up transfer that came in from the Big West. 
He was able to really create at the end of games. He had a little bit of a clutch gene going on with him and does a nice job of being able to dole out the ball. He was able to give out right around about 3.8 assists to 1.5 turnovers per contest. Very efficient. Not a guy that's going to go out there and light it up from three-point range. That is going to be a little bit of an Achilles heel for this Vanderbilt team. You do have a little bit of question mark when it comes to three-point shooting. You've got Tazos Camateros, who comes in from South Dakota at six foot eight. He's able to pop a few threes. I do think that Lee Dort is going to be able to take some strides forward as well. Was a little bit silent during his freshman year. You'd like to see a little bit more there. You would like to see a tad bit more out of Colin Smith as well. But I do think that we are very much sleeping on Tyron Lawrence. I think that Tyron Lawrence is really going to be that heart and soul guy that is going to be able to, in what I believe is his senior year, I don't think it's his fifth year senior year, but his senior year, I think he's really going to be able to take those strides forward. First two years at Vanderbilt really didn't do a whole lot of fly, and then he just completely exploded for 13 points per contest, was able to do a nice job of being able to pop threes, and really towards the back half of the season, since that final game that they played against UAB, this guy was just a complete menace. Final 10 games of the regular season, averaged 18.5 points, 1.2 seals, shot 51.4% from three-point range, putting in there at least 13 points in all but one of those games, being able to put in there at least 16 points at all but two of them. Tyron Lawrence I think is one of the better guards in the entirety of the SEC. I think his coming of age last year was very big for this Vanderbilt team and I do think that there's quite a bit of upside with a team of which I believe that the whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts. With Vanderbilt I do have them as a result at number 10 with regards to my projector or finish. At number 9 I am going to be going with Ole Miss. Now Ole Miss is one of the hardest teams to project because they do have a lot of guys that were waiting on a waiver on. Good news is Alan Flanagan is going to be in the fold when he was over at Auburn a few seasons ago. He was able to put up 12 plus points per contest. He's able to give you five boards. Six foot six guy that's able to do a wide variety of things. And he's going to team up very well with Matthew Morrell and Jamin Brakefield. We can talk all that we want about Chris Beard bringing in a bunch of transfers. And he does bring in a bunch of transfers. There's a good chance that they're going to be without Brandon Murray this year. But you bring back a guy in Morrell who was really that top scorer for the team last year. 14 points per contest from three-point range was a little bit shaky last year. 30.5% from distance after two seasons ago was shooting more around 38.5% from three-point range. But I really think that in this style, with Chris Beard being able to coach him up, I think that he's going to be able to do some very, very solid work. Was able to dole out two and a half assists per contest as well. This team does need a little bit more of an identity in terms of being able to dish out the ball. But with Morello as well, it was very encouraging what you saw in the back half of the season with him. Final eight games, right around three assists and two turnovers per contest. Was able to put in there about 15 points per contest. I really like his overall game. It started out very hot as well. I believe that he dealt with a few injuries that were a little bit under the radar that did limit him just a tad. With Brakefield, he's six foot eight. He's able to pop threes now. You would love to have Musa Cisse out there, one of the best defensive big men in all of college basketball. But even if you don't, Jamarian Sharp, you are going to have him out there. The national leader in blocks last year. He is figuratively and literally the biggest transfer in all of college basketball at seven foot five. You got Rashad Marshalls coming in as a freshman as well. I think that he's going to offer a little bit of something. Austin Nunes, not necessarily a guy that's going to go out there and give you a lot of points, but he's going to be able to play some tough defense with Ole Miss. They just weren't able to keep up in the SEC last year because their defense wasn't up to snuff. Chris Beard is going to get that defense to be humming regardless of who he's going to have out there in the fold. A little bit of question mark with regards to this roster, but they did a great job of winning the transfer portal. I see this as a bubble team for the NCAA tournament. We got Ole Miss, number nine, with regards to my projector or finish. 
And number eight, I'm going to be going with Alabama. With Alabama, you just lose so much from last season. And I like the fact that they bring in Aaron Estrada, a guy that was at Hofstra last year, able to put in there 15 points, five boards, five assists. He's just so limitless what he's able to do. And Latrell Wrightsell Jr., while he was over at Cal State Fullerton, he was a walking bucket for that team. But now they have to go from being the top scorers at their respective schools to now being second, third fiddle guys that are going to need to go up against SEC competition night in and night out. Love what I saw to Sears as well. He should be really the ringleader of everything with 12.5 points, 2.5 assists per contest. Last season, you have to figure that he's going to take over a lot of the ball handling duties. So that's a little bit of a question as well. Do you have the ball in his hands a little bit more? Do you give it to a little bit more of Aaron Estrada as well? Chris Parker is someone that comes in at six foot six. He's got good versatility, and Grant Nelson is someone that I love. This guy was a human high right reel over at North Dakota State, and this is the sort of big man that you do want with this program because with Alabama, they are consistently one of the top teams in terms of tempo and total possessions per game in all of college basketball. But I mean, let's just call it what it is. You lose what was really able to push Alabama over the top. We noticed two years ago when the team fell short, it's because they played no defense whatsoever. Guess what you got with Brandon Miller, a guy that was able to guard multiple positions, was able to hit the glass. Noah Clowney was able to give you eight rebounds per game. Charles Bediaco was able to give you six rebounds per game. These guys are all gone. You don't return anyone other than Sears that really gave you north of 3.1 rebounds per contest. You're going to need Nick Pringle to be able to step up, and I think that he's going to be able to do a relatively solid job, but they just don't have that same level of low post play that they did have a season ago, and we've noticed with Alabama, unless if their defense is very much solid, and I think that it's going to take a step back this year. They're a middle-of-the-road SEC team. We did see that two years ago, and I fear that that might be the case this year just because of how brutal this conference is. So as a result, I do have Alabama number eight with regards to my projector finish. And number seven, I'm going to be going with Florida. With Florida, it is awful that they lose Colin Castleton, to say the least, and you could tell that the fall-off when they did not have him in the fold, that was rough, and E.J. Jarvis now being out, that hurts. He was a very good defensive big man while he was over at Yale, but I believe that Michael Hanglon is going to be very good on the defensive end of things. Not a guy that tore it up with regards to scoring while he was at Marshall. Only 7.6 points per contest, but he was able to generate a little bit over his CO per contest. 2.3 blocks, 9.8 rebounds per game. Stands right around 7'1". I absolutely love what he's able to bring to the table. He's able to do a very solid job of being versatile on Marshall. They were very much an up-tempo team, so if Florida's looking to fly a little bit more here in season number two out under Todd Golden, they're going to be able to do so, and then you bring in Walter Klain, who shot north of 40% from three-point range while playing under Slick Rick Patino. You know what this guy is able to bring to the table. Will Richard was having his moments last year. Some of them great, some of them not so great, but the guy that I really think is worth taking a look at here is Riley Kugel, because with Riley Kugel, he got off to a slow start last season, and the Colin Castleton injury really did signal the end of the season for Florida, but while you did see him out of the fold, Riley Kugel really became the go-to guy and was really able to assert himself and get some good experience. I think he's going to pay dividends this season for Riley Kugel. In the final 10 games of the season, he was able to put up double figures in every single one of them. Averaged 17.3 points on 39.6% three-point shooting while taking darn near five threes per contest. Not a guy that's necessarily going to be doling it out or anything like that, but at six foot five, he's able to be an absolute weapon along the perimeter. You bring in Zion Pullen, who you need him to pull in some buckets. He's able to do so. Was a nice go-to guy over at UC Riverside. Is able to play some solid defense. 
Depth is going to be a little bit of a question mark now that Jarvis is out of the fold. You bring in Therese Samuel at 6'10". He's a very solid defensive player coming in from Seton Hall. So I do have some question marks there. Thomas Ha, who comes in as a freshman, he's going to need to help out a little bit. But with Florida, I do think that this is a well-coached team. I think that Todd Golden in season number two is going to be able to get things going with this Florida team. I've got them number seven with regards to my projector finish. And number six, I'm going to be going with Mississippi State. With Mississippi State... I really wanted to put the team higher. And as a matter of fact, I had Mississippi State at number four before that injury to Tolu Smith. He should be coming back sometime in SEC play. That is a gut punch. He was the only guy on the roster that was really able to give the team double figures last season, was able to give you north of eight rebounds per contest. Just tremendous on the defensive side of things. Does a solid job as a rim protector. Not necessarily a guy that's going to get you a whole bunch of blocks or anything like that, but absolutely love his game. So this is one that it stings to say the least, but still with this punch, what they did is they upgraded the three-point shooting and boy, oh boy, did they need to. They were dead last in the country last year in three-point shooting percentage and still was able to make the NCAA tournament. Now they bring in Andrew Taylor. Andrew Taylor, north of 20 points per contest, looked really good on this team's foreign tour, shot 36.5% from three-point range last season while he was at Marshall. Now, word of caution, he shot more like 33% the season before he's sort of been all over the place, a career about 35.5% three-point shooter, but regardless, he is going to be able to elevate this back court, a backcourt that they just get up into you. They're able to generate turnovers. They do a great job with on-ball defense. Guys like Deshaun Davis and company, I really like what they bring to the table. Shaquille Moore, I think, is a little bit of a better shooter than what he showed through last year. Trey Ford is someone that comes in as a junior college transfer, and he's going to be able to do some nice work. And while you have out of the full Tolu Smith. I do think that Jimmy Bell Jr. along DJ Jeffries into Anamar are going to be able to do a solid job with Bell Jr. being probably more of your rim protector at six foot ten with DJ Jeffries. He's got a little bit of versatility to him. Not going to be shooting threes, but he's not necessarily a guy that is a complete back-to-the-basket guy, but I do love the way that Mississippi State plays defense. I love the coaching job that Chris Jantz has been able to do. A little bit more sour on this team now that they are dealing with that injury to Tolu Smith, but I still have them number six with regards to my projector or finish. And number five, I'm going to be going with Arkansas. Arkansas certainly has a roster that is better than number five in this conference. You bring in Gay Leaf Battle, a double-figure scorer at Temple that's able to stroke it from three, Traymond Mark. He was a big heart and soul piece when I was at Houston last year. You bring back Devontae Devo Davis, who I absolutely love. Trevon Brazil, after he had his season cut short prematurely last year, he's into the full Jeremiah Davenport. You just go down the list, but with Arkansas... I mean, it's just like clockwork with this team. You know that they're going to be struggling a little bit early on during the season. That should linger into SEC play just a little bit. I don't think that they're going to be going sub-500 with regards to conference play because I do think that even some like an LLS who he had to do everything over at Louisville. He's a much more efficient player than the guy that we saw at Louisville last year that had four-plus turnovers per contest because a bad shot for him was much better than a good shot for many of the schlubs that he had on that Louisville team. I mean, they were just completely bereft of talent. They had no guards whatsoever, so everything had to go through L. Ellis, but with this Arkansas team as well, they had some troubles with regards to three-point shooting. I think that battle is going to be able to elevate them. Jeremiah Davenport has been a little bit of a streaky shooter throughout his career, but I do like this Bay Fall who comes in as six foot ten. He's a nice big man that I think is going to be able to help out. They don't have quite the freshman star power that they had a season ago, but I do think that that's going to be a little bit to their advantage as well, because with Arkansas, the big reason why they struggled last year is because 
because you had guys like Nick Smith, all those freshmen that they were just in and out of the fold due to injury. I think that a clean bill of health for Devo Davis, along with being able to team up with Mark, when it's all said and done, this team is going to be so dangerous. And Trevon Brazil at six foot ten, we didn't get to see a ton of him last year, but he's got good versatility. Love what I saw on the team's foreign tour from him last year before he got injured. And I do think that this is an Arkansas team that's going to be able to build a lot of upward momentum. So I do have Arkansas at number five with regards to my projector finish. At number four, I am going to be going with Kentucky. With Kentucky, they've got all the talent in the world, but once again, much like we were talking with Arkansas, how is it going to fit together? You bring in Aaron Bradshaw, seven-footer with good versatility. This guy is going to be a complete menace if he's able to put it all together. Justin Edwards, DJ Wagner. I mean, these are two of the best recruits that you're able to find in all of college basketball. Wagner probably going to be taking a lot of the ball-handling duties. And then you've got Antonio Reeves, who is such a good sharpshooter, has shot over the last few years between Illinois State and Kentucky, darn near 40% from three-point range, and really became a go-to guy for Kentucky last year. So big that they get him back in the full tray. Mitchell, we've seen what he's able to do at the likes of Texas, UMass. He's able to pop it from three-point range. I really like his game, but I think the big question mark here is, I'm probably going to say this incorrectly, Yugana Onyeso. He's a 6'9 gentleman that comes back from last year. He's really one of the lone guys other than Reeves that saw meaningful minutes last year. You're going to need him to be able to step up in a little bit more of a rim protector role. He's going to need to do the not-so-flashy things for the team, and I do think that he's going to be able to do so. They also bring in James Okunkwo as well. I really don't have a lot of thoughts on him, even if he's eligible because I do think that he's just a little bit more of a depth piece to begin with, but all in all, this is a Kentucky team that should be able to go relatively deep, even someone like a Reed Shepard who, he's not on the same level as a guy like a Robert Dillingham, but company, he's a very good freshman though that I think could be able to develop as the season goes along. Kentucky has limitless talent. How do the pieces come together though? I do have some question marks there. I recognize that they look pretty good on their foreign tours tournament at the Global Jam, but there are still some question marks, especially with Bradshaw dealing with an injury as well. So I do have Kentucky at number four in my projector or finish. And number three, I'm going to be going with Texas A&M. Talk about running it back with Texas A&M. They bring back darn near everyone from a season ago. Now, the one thing I will say about Texas A&M is that they too got off to a really slow start last year. Like, they lost a game at home to Walford last year. They got boat raced in a game against Boise State on a neutral court game that was technically out there in the state of Texas. They had a really less than savory start to the season, but when the team was able to bear down, they were able to bear down. And I always love to use this phrase the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So you've got a top scorer that's able to do a very solid job of being able to help out with that with Wade Taylor the fourth. I do think that he's going to be able to elevate last year. 16 points, four assists per contest. He's going to have the ball in his hands a lot, but that's that. You've got someone like a Julius Marble who will give you like nine points, four boards. Henry Coleman who will give you more like six boards, maybe nine to ten points per contest. Manny Obaseki, he just knows his role. He was someone that got injured about midway through last season, but he was able to give this team some good three-point shooting, and that's going to be big because that was a big liability for this team with Texas A&M. They're just built around getting to the free-throw line. They had the most made free-throws per game of any team in all of college basketball last year. This team goes in attack, attack, attack mode, despite the fact that they're not necessarily like super-duper up-tempo or anything like that. They just bring the fight to you, being able to bring back so much of that core from last season. I do think it's very good. I think that Eli Lawrence 
is going to be a good fit with everything that this team looks to do along with Jace Carter, but I love the fact that they're going to be running it back from a season ago, and I do think that Wade Taylor going to be a fringe All-American candidate when it's all said and done. I really love his game to be able to elevate, and then you've got Therese Radford, who's able to do a nice job of being able to support him off the ball as well. So I do have Texas A&M number three with regards to my projector or finish. I've got Auburn at number two with regards to my projector or finish. I have not seen a lot of people as bullish on them, but GNI Broom is cleaning up down low. This guy is able to give you a double-double when you need him. He's able to block some shots. We really saw him be able to stretch out his range a little bit last year as well with Auburn. The one thing that was holding them back is that they were in the 300s with regards to three-point shooting percentage, but you bring in Denver Jones, a guy that at Florida International was able to put in there a double-figure amount of points. He's able to generate some steals. Auburn, I think, is going to be very good at being able to both generate steals and then if they don't get a steal, they're able to get back on defense and they're really able to get up in your grill. So, I absolutely love that about them. And then they bring in what I think might be the best Juco transfer in all of college basketball. Most publications have them more around that five range, something like that. But Chad Baker Mazzaro actually began his career over at Duquesne along with San Diego State. This guy, while he was playing for Northwest Florida State College, has one of the best junior colleges out there in college basketball, shot nearly 47% from three, 15 points per contest for a team that was able to make the national championship game at the junior college level. This guy was just able to elevate that team. I think that he is really going to be able to explode. Six foot seven guy that's able to do a little bit of everything. And even when he was at San Diego State, he was a little bit of a contributor as well. So I do think that that was a very big and under the radar pickup for this team. You also bring in Aiden Holloway. He's one of the best freshman guards that you're going to find in all of college basketball. You should be able to do a nice job of being able to elevate this backcourt along Katie Johnson. Katie Johnson along Jalen Williams. We're able to do a nice job for the team. And Williams was truly one of the only guys that were able to shoot from three-point range. But I do think that with Dylan Cardwell back in the fold as well, you've got good depth to be able to help out G&I Broom down low. And I do think that this is an Auburn team that they've got just enough depth to be able to elevate. They needed a little bit more pop with regards to their three-point shooting. They've got an incredible home court environment. I think Auburn is really going under the radar. And I do think that they are in for a big year. I've got them number two in my projector of finish. And then at number one, and this is for the regular season. I'm not saying that this is a team that is going to be going furthest in the NCAA tournament. We are talking in relationship to the regular season conference crown. I am going with Tennessee. I still do have my question marks with whether or not Rick Barnes is going to be able to get the job done in March, but in getting the job done in January, February, like March 1st, so it's like last SEC games of the regular season. I think that it's going to be there. Now, we do have some question marks with regards to Sakai Ziegler. One is he going to be able to get that out there on the floor, but it was very clear that Tennessee, they needed to address one thing, the fact that sometimes this offense gets a little bit stagnant, and they did a very nice job bringing in someone in Dalton Connect, who I think he's going to connect with his teammates, as last season when I was at Northern Colorado, was able to put in their 20 points, 7 boards, shot 38% for 3. Now, I recognize that he comes in from another Colorado team that they were allergic to defense. That is not necessarily too terrific, but I do think that he is going to be able to be a good fit. We have seen Rick Barnes be able to meld guys in 
into this defensive style, and I do think that they are going to be able to do a good job of helping out there. You've got Josiah Jordan James, who I mean, a lot of people forget he was like a former top 40 or so recruit, and just does a little bit of everything. When he's fully healthy, he'll give you like 10 points, 5 boards, a block, a steal, shooting the mid-30s from 3-point range. Doesn't do one thing great, does a lot of things very solidly, and it feels like Santiago Vescovi is a Van Wilder of the SEC because he's back for another year as well, and I just always love his game. He doesn't turn the ball over a whole heck of a lot. Now, sometimes he can go a little bit cold with his shooting, but it's been a career about 38% three-point shooter. He's able to give you right in the neighborhood about 11.5 points per contest last year. He gave out three assists to only about 1.5 turnovers per contest. Does a good job of rebounding, and that's a hallmark of Tennessee. With Tennessee, this was one of the top rebounding teams in all of college basketball last year, and losing Olivier Kamwa is tough, but they're able to absorb a blow like Olivier Kamwa because not a single player on this roster, and Kamwa was the guy, averaged more than five rebounds per game. Someone like a Jonas Adu, I think is going to be able to do a relatively solid job down low. He was able to give you about 4.9 rebounds per game. Losing Julian Phillips is a little bit tough, but honestly, I was expecting a little bit more out of him as well. You do lose some of those ancillary pieces from a season ago, but they did a nice job of being able to bring in someone like a connect. I think that Freddie Delani, he's going to be able to do a relatively solid job coming in as a freshman along with Cameron Carr. They're going to see a few minutes. This is always a team in which the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and don't sleep on Jordan Ganey and what he's able to bring to the table in that backcourt as well. I've got Tennessee number one with regards to my projector or finish. And now we'll wrap things up for my SEC preview edition right here on Coast Coast Soups, now part of the Visa Family Podcast. If you do have a question, comment, segment idea, what have you for this podcast, you do have one of two ways we offer those in. First one is my Twitter slash X timeline at gdn underscore d1. Keep in mind, letters CM, they mean does not matter. So as per usual, please do send these into the timeline. Other ways, find an Apple podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated. From there, you're able to fire in whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast via that five-star review. A big thanks, as always, to Blake Lovell. He does amazing work over there at Southeastern 14, and I'll be coming at you guys every single day on this podcast here in the offseason, getting you guys the news and notes of college basketball. And... They get a look at everything that we're getting news-wise with regards to injuries, what have you, and then once we get in season, picks and analysis on every single game, every single day. So appreciate you guys joining me today, and I'll be back with you once again tomorrow. Thank you. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.